So hello and welcome back to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by Humanitarian AI Meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. My name is Roberto Villasexto. I'm the country director for Ukraine with the Norwegian Refugee Council. And today I'm going to guest host an interview with Jacob Harbo, country manager for Ukraine with the Danish Red Cross. We're going to be discussing conditions in Ukraine this winter, humanitarian needs and operations, attacks on humanitarian facilities and applications of artificial intelligence. So welcome, Jacob, to the podcast. And to get us started, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe perhaps tell us what got you into humanitarian operations and what drives you to work for people in need? Thanks a lot, Roberto, and thank you for having me. I think, well, I think it's going to be a long story what drives me to be in the humanitarian aid, but uh, I've been with the sector for more than 25 years now, and I think uh, the main thing for me is this interlockages between the long-term effects and the short-term humanitarian needs. I think for me is the most interesting. I think uh, Ukraine situation in particular is, of course, as a Dane, which is very, very close to Ukraine, I think it's, of course, of special interest when the conflict gets so close to your own country, then of course it's it's a little bit more, uh, you know, it gets closer to your heart. But I have been in, in many conflicts. I was in Syria 10 years ago and in Pakistan after the earthquakes in 2010. And I also, unfortunately, was also in the Lebanon during the, the last war between Israel and Lebanon. We hope there will not be a new one, but that's uh, just to say that that's uh, very much my, my background in different scenarios of humanitarian aid. I also think in terms of AI, I think maybe also it's quite important to mention, apart from being part of the Danish Red Cross, I'm also actually a board member of the data-friendly service. So so I'm actually also trying to support that way and see how we can use data in a much better way in the human insurance sector. Because I think when we talk about data and all things, we are all discussing about how data is coming more accessible, but there's also so much of it. That is very, very difficult to make, you know, complete use of all of it. So. Any regrets about the career choice? Always. <laughs> I think uh, there's many, many things that is uh, that always uh, comes into your mind when you're when you're making careers. But, but I think uh, I, I've learned from time that you cannot regret all the things that you missed. You just have to follow the flow. And uh, all this, uh, I always try to say to young people, please. Do not try and plan everything in detail what you want to do. It's never going to succeed anyway. So just go with the flow and then change back if you make mistakes. Thank you. And and for our listeners who are mostly students and uh, artificial intelligence developers who want to do more to help humanitarian actors, can you tell us about your role as a Ukraine country director of, uh, and what you do? Yeah, well, I think... Of course, as, as we all know, uh, one of the major things directors does is very much is HR stuff, which of course is not very, not always very interesting, but it is a very important part of what we do. But I think in terms of the AI part, I think the, the main thing for me is trying to predict and position and place the Danish Red Cross together with the Ukrainian Red Cross Society in how the future of Ukraine should look. And and right now, of course, we're looking in, in mainly in two areas. You can say there's the whole reconstruction part of Ukraine that is coming forward. And there, of course, is how do you 
as a humanitarian organization, position yourself in that and how do you become relevant in that? Because we do think that humanitarian organizations should have a part to play together with the private sectors and others in the reconstruction. But how do you do that when it's all these big uh, major powers and, and governments who are just talking, the G7s are talking, but how do you involve as a small humanitarian organization? I think that's the that's one of the key areas. But on the short term, of course, it's also around the whole humanitarian setting. How do we how do we in this humanitarian situation try to continuously be on the forefront of what's going to happen? The, I think there's one thing Ukraine crisis have taught me is that it changes very rapidly. There's new things happening that was not expected. It's not like a normal, in my view, ongoing war situation because new things did happen. Uh, Last year, we had, of course, the attack suddenly on the on the infrastructure on the big cities around Ukraine. I don't think anyone had really seen that coming as such. And then, you, of course, you had the Kahovka Dam explosion, and you have so there are different tactics all the time that changes. Also, depending on a little bit how what kind of weapons Ukraine has been been given, so that dynamics of the conflict to try and predict that and be ready for what's happening on the humanitarian situation, combined with talking the long term and sustainability of Ukraine. I think those are the complications that we are working with as a contramander. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, that uh, conventional warfare is quite different, right, than, than the working in other countries. Uh, I mean, I've worked in some some of the countries that you, you've worked as well, and, uh, and it's completely different. You don't know what to expect. And uh, last year, it was business continuity at some point uh, when even cities like Kiev were on the brink of uh, being evacuated because they couldn't cater, they couldn't cope with the uh, needs of the population in terms of uh, power, in terms of uh, water supply. And uh, so can you give us an idea maybe what's difficult about wintertime aid operations uh, in Ukraine at the moment? I think that again, the the main. I think you need to divide a little bit the country into different areas. There's the whole area which is around, let's say, 50, 60 kilometers from the front line, and there, of course, the the needs are just massive. They need everything, more or less, and the access is very, very limited because of the heavy bombardment. So I think there, it's a would you say a normal humanitarian crisis, very hard to reach and very difficult to access. But again, also the problem, of course, in Ukraine is that it becomes winter. And it becomes real winter. And the last week and so, we have had down to minus 15 during the week. So that's, of course, is also making that even worse and also makes it much more important to get out with aid very, very quickly to help these people who want to stay in the area because that is probably the main problem in those areas is we, we are talking about mainly elderly who do not want to leave, even though it is really, really horrible to be there. So I think that's the, that's one part of it. And then you have the east as the rest of the east, so everything east of Kiev is more or less in a situation where there are daily attacks and daily sirens. And, and there the needs are also quite substantial and also where the most of the power cuts will be during the during the, the attacks. So there there's a need to make sure that you can cater for individuals or, or small groups of people that have to leave their homes for a shorter period of time. And that's a one bit. And then there's the West. I would say there's nothing particular in the West. There's there's of course the IDPs that are that have that have been displaced for a long time, and they will of course still need support in the general. But there's nothing new as such apart from the cold that is, that is happening in the West. That's a little bit how at least we read the situation that 
that the winter is mainly affecting the east and particularly the ones along the front line. Roberto, this is Brent listening in. And yeah. uh, I'd like to ask if you'd like to add anything about your work and your day-to-day work in Ukraine and how that's similar and a bit different than Jakob's from your vantage point. Thank you, Brent. Uh, I think it's quite similar. I mean, we have operations along the front line from the north, uh, along the east and in the south. The winter obviously complicates things, especially for the population that we're trying to to assist. The recent attacks as well on, on major cities, I mean, they saw a volume of different types of uh, weapons being used that we had not seen before. Uh, so, I mean, the air raid alerts are already menacing, right? I mean, they're already disruptive because uh, you need to seek cover and wait. And then on top of that, then the indiscriminate attacks. So you, you never know where and what is going to be the damage. So at the moment, even in cities like Kiev, we have a, a, an emergency response activity with other NGOs and, um, and UN to assist the victims of uh, those that were impacted by the attacks. It, so, yeah, the winter definitely complicates, complicates things even more, and then it makes it harder for families to cope because uh, they have, uh, obviously, the, the, those that are most vulnerable can cope with the cost of utilities. Uh, you need to be creative. You, need to, you can really venture into the forests anymore in many areas because they're heavily contaminated by, by mines. And, and uh, so, you know, you have to go and procure firewood. So that's something that that, uh, NGOs like us, but many others do as well. But definitely, I mean, there is a a slight difference. I mean, this winter is definitely colder than last winter. Last winter, at this point, the operations were on the brink of collapse because of of the the heavy strikes uh, throughout uh, December that started, I mean, they started in October 10th, but uh, they lasted for for a long time. And as I said, they brought cities to the brink of collapse. Um, So pretty much along the lines of what uh, Jacob was describing. I think one of the major changes from last year was that last year we saw quite a lot of mass displacement of people that needed to go away because I don't know how people are thinking, but I live in an apartment. When I lived in Copenhagen, I live in an apartment. I do not know how to warm that up if I don't get the heating from the central heating system. You cannot start a fire in your apartment. Well, you got a you got a nice uh, nice fire behind you, Brent. But that but I think for me, I think that's really important. When you live in this is a modern country, Ukraine. They live in high rises. How do you heat an apartment when you live in that? When there's no when the central power goes off, that's not possible because then you're gonna kill yourself with dioxin. So people had to move. And what, of course, they found out was, of course, the communities are very good to help each other because it is slightly easier to heat your uh, place if you live in a little bit of in a house outside outside the cities because then you can actually just cut down a, a tree next door and just and, and heat yourself. So I think we saw mass displacement last year. This We haven't seen that this year uh, because, of the, because the attacks have not been so heavy on the infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. 
I remember in Bosnia, Sarajevo during the war, you know, you're right, you have all these high rises and, you know, there's no way to heat these things. How are people coping with being displaced for, uh, for another year and another winter? How's that going for either of you? Like the IDP situation in Ukraine and the, the concentrations of displaced people trying to but cope through another winter. I think we saw in 22, you saw a lot of people leaving the country. And those people are, of course, some of them have come back, but generally most of or a lot of them are staying outside uh, of Ukraine. And then you had a, a lot of people who also moved to the West and they are also more or less fixed in the areas, but they are trying to integrate in those areas where they're living. Not so much in these uh, collective centers that we saw before, but I think the main the main challenge, or at least where we see the main challenge, are the ones that are displaced in 23. And, and now we are mainly talking Hassan and Hakif. So when the front line moves, the people who suddenly were are now within the 50 kilometers of artillery range are the ones who needs to leave. So Hassan city, for instance, when it was under Russian occupation, there was it was actually relatively calm there. It was, of course, hard to be under Russian occupation. But as soon as the Ukrainian, they, they took uh, the city, then the front line just moved to the other side of the river, and now they're bombarded daily. And that meant you had a massive amount of people from Kherson city who moved. But the point is, the people who live in the east now, and the ones who live in Kherson and Kharkiv, they want to go back. So they are generally not moving very far. The displacement, as far as we see, they only, from Kherson, they only moved to Mykolaiv, which is around 60, 70 kilometers away, or to Odessa, that's 150 kilometers, but they're not moving very far because they actually want to go back. And I think that creates a, a different scenario because you have people who are very much insisting on they want to move back. And that means they will stay in a temporary position where many of the people who left in 22, I think, at least in my view, seems like they are, sorry to say, they're getting ready for a longer stay, right? The, while, while the one in the East, they are, they are not there at that moment right now. Yeah, I would add, there's still 8 million Ukrainians uh, abroad and, uh, and 4 million internally displaced people. And then what we are seeing also is that uh, families that try to resettle in the West are running out of uh, coping strategies and are going back to their places of origin. That could be very unsafe locations in Kharkiv, Kherson, um, anywhere along the front line, and they go back to bombed out houses. I mean, we've seen people go go back to to damaged houses, and just because they couldn't cope, uh, they couldn't cope with the rent. They couldn't find uh, affordable housing in the West or other areas in the country. So there is also that flow and that happening. So may I ask? What do you need this winter? How can people help you? And what, what are your greatest challenges like this winter? And um, maybe Roberto, maybe you can go first. Yeah, I mean, well, we work with uh, institutional funding. So everything that, uh, that comes to us comes from uh, owners, foreign government and ministries of foreign affairs and, and then UN agencies. So uh, it's a very complex, it's always been very complex everywhere in it to raise funding. I mean, in Ukraine, maybe not so much until now, but uh, it's, it's shifting. It, obviously, there are now many major 
crisis in the war in in the world. Um, we've got Gaza, we've got uh, Sudan, Afghanistan, earthquake uh, in in Turkey and in, in, in Syria. So so it's been it's been a tough year, but uh, globally, which is quite surprising, globally, humanitarian funding is decreasing. And uh, Ukraine was well-funded in 2022, in 2023, in, and in relative terms to, to other crises that are very neglected, is a well-funded operation. But, uh, but we still, I mean, we're starting to see a shift of uh, humanitarian assistance towards early recovery. And it's still, I mean, this is still a country at war. Is still a counter war in the East and in the West, because in the West of the country, there are also, also strikes, and those and the, 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 the air raid alerts go off every single day. They're also as menacing, and then the strikes as, are as destructive and as deadly as uh, anywhere else in the country, not as relentless, obviously, as along the, the front line, but uh, anyway, is uh, we work with institutional funding, so that that complicates things a little. But uh, it will we have, and uh, I'm sure Danish Red Cross and uh, can, the Ukrainian Red Cross and the Federation. I mean, they they have similar programs for uh, winterization. So we know this year better what families need that we we saw last winter. So so we're trying to still support in that way with uh, whatever uh, is necessary from from uh, a cash for utilities, cash for firewood. Uh, we have uh, an electronic voucher system as well with one of the major uh, retailers in Ukraine for household items. Uh, so we, we also we have a large shelter program and uh, this is light to medium repairs, so it's to insulate houses, uh, change windows that have been blown out. Um, so that's what we are focusing our efforts. How about you, Jakob? What, um, what are you seeing? Or what are you doing? And what well, kind of needs are you seeing? Yeah, well, well I, think, I think it's important to say that I think both Roberto and myself, when we are planning for the winter, I think our planning ends around... Uh, August, right? Because then you need to be ready for the winter. So now it's a little bit, we can't really change what we're doing for the winter before it's ending because a lot of things take time. But we are mainly, many of the same thing that Roberto and, and Nasia are doing is also what we are doing. But I think also, of course, as, a, as the Red Cross the family, we also focus a lot on health. And I think one of the things that we also do, of course, is trying to, we, we're trying to temporarily evacuate the people who wants to and needs to, and then put them back when they would say that the power has been restored and so on a week later. Uh, so that's one thing, but also trying to ensure they get essential medicines and get the, the medical equipment they need. So have mobile health units to try and support the ones that are out where there's no coverage, right, is one of the major issues. I think one of the, the big things around this, this winter, as I said, I think it is, as Roberto also a little bit mentioned, it's a little bit more of the same as what happened last year. It's I don't think, I, I haven't seen the major... Uh, surprises this year. We we feared worse in terms of strikes that has not come, and that, that of course is a positive thing. But I think people need to remember 
And I think that's a, when when you see the newspapers in in the Western world, you see the strikes on Kiev, and you see and you see sometimes you see the Kahovka Dam and all things. I think people are forgetting that is not the real war. Yes, it does affect my life and and Roberto's life that we sometimes have to go to shelter and so on. But we are forgetting there's a thousand kilometers front line out east where thousands of people are dying every week. And I think for me, it it doesn't show in the news in the, in the West. And I think for me that's that's a little bit the fear that I have that you also mentioned, Roberto. This is about people forgetting this is an ongoing conflict, and we have hundreds of people dying every single day. And I think that is very much forgotten in this uh, in this whole and and the and the fact that you have hundreds of especially Ukrainians dying affects the rest of the population in such a massive way. You have you have families that are being destroyed every single day because of all these people getting killed. And I think that whole effect on the on the, how the society of Ukraine is being changed in these years, I think it's something we really have to be careful not to overlook because on the on the psychosocial side, on the mental side, on the on the way the whole fabric of the of the nation is combined, they are really being undermined, right? They they just came out with a report, the, the British came out and said that they expect five hundred thousand Russian soldiers will be killed by the end of twenty-four for the whole period, right? It's it's a massive amount of people, and on the Ukrainian side, they don't have that number to to build up. They're also losing thousands of thousands of people, and that just destroys the whole fabric of society. And I think for me, that is a little bit. Even though we hear a lot about the Ukrainian crisis, for me, it's a little bit the untold story. We hear a lot about the strikes in Kiev, and I'm sorry to say, I'm not that important. <laughs> I think the important part here is the is what happens in the east, and I think. Uh, and I think for me, that's uh, where we want to keep our focus as as the Red Cross as well, trying to help the one in the East. I also, there are needs in the West, but that's the main humanitarian needs are in the East, and that's where it has. And I think one of the major things we can do is try to attract and say to people, yes, the 50 kilometers along the front line, that's where the problems are. That's where the humanitarian needs are very, very heavy, and we need to continue humanitarian aid. But the rest of the country, I only have one plea to everyone. It doesn't matter which company they work in. Come back to Ukraine, invest in Ukraine, because what we cannot have is that the economy of Ukraine goes down. So we need people to come back, even though the risk might be slightly higher. Roberto, would you like to add anything to that? Like, what's the untold story that you're seeing on the ground in Ukraine? What I mentioned before, there is such a number of large crisis in the world i mean is is obviously now it's not front page ukraine anymore but uh it's still a country at war and it's a it's massive is uh is what jacob was saying is uh it's affecting millions of people i mean they're in the new uh humanitarian needs and response plan that will be released uh, this month later i mean the total number of people in need is still 14 million right of which the humanitarian community including all of us un uh red cross uh, so we'll be able to potentially or we we would like to assist uh, a, a, at least 8 million so 14 million of people in need in ukraine 8 million people out of ukraine 4 million people displaced inside Ukraine. So it's still a massive impact 
on, as Jacob was saying, the population and the and the country. So, but uh, yeah, I understand it, it. It doesn't make the front page anymore. What's happening in Gaza is obviously beyond what anyone. And I worked in Gaza before. What I I, I mean, and and uh, it's beyond anything that I've seen before. But um, it's true also that uh, that here along that thousand kilometer front line, people die every single day. Roberto, I thought I'd ask both of you for your thoughts on artificial intelligence and are you optimistic? And is it hard to be optimistic in technology when your day-to-day is so difficult and there's maybe not a way for AI to be of use immediately? You know, it's growing so fast. It's just amazing. And maybe our our hopes of it being able to help will be realized soon. But how do you feel about AI and applications of technology and the real world. Roberto, I'll let you go first. Uh, well, I would say that, uh, I mean, it's exciting times in terms of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and then, I mean, everything that is digital, and just to start before uh, going into AI. So we have uh, our largest program in Ukraine is uh, digital multipurpose cash. So with that program, which entails a number of, uh, I mean, I would say that a, a team of 10 software experts to run a contracts with different service providers in terms of software and, and data processing. And, and uh, so that program has been able through that program, through our digital MPC program, in, we've been able to assist uh, 400,000 people since uh, the war, the escalation of the war uh, started uh, in February 2022. So we're very open. I mean, NRC is, is very open to new ways, technology, new ways of, uh, and we're trying to, to stay to stay abreast of uh, anything that can uh, facilitate and speed up the response. So in addition to the digital uh, multi-purpose cash team, we have uh, electronic vouchers, we have uh, other digital cash programs uh, going of different kinds, uh, including cash for rent, cash for protection, cash for uh, repairs. So in I mean, Ukraine has a Ministry of Digital Transformation, so it's a country that is, it was way ahead in many ways. Now we're trying to work with the Ministry of Economy, the Ministry of Digital Transformation and Employment Services through um, a, a consultancy firm called the Skill Lab to create an app that would allow people to generate um, their profiles, their career profiles, and then would, uh, in turn, the app is supposed to give you a career path and then advise you on the different types of things that you need to do to achieve your goals. So, so we're very close to the Ministry of Digital Transformation, very close to these initiatives. We've been using AI we have a policy, and actually this is a, this is a new thing that the NRC had to do right away. 
last year is to because of chat gpt and and the multiple uh, opportunities but threats that that that, uh, that also presents so we had to quickly come up with a global ai policy on good use of uh, artificial intelligence but i see i see a massive opportunity here to facilitate humanitarian work and definitely digital is something that uh, is very ingrained in our response. Jakob, how about you? Are you optimistic about AI and how does AI meet the real world in Ukraine? I don't think it's very relevant for us if we're talking a humanitarian where things change all the time if it hasn't been updated since March. So I think, so in that sense, I think it depends a little bit how quickly these tools are updated because otherwise it's a bit... Uh, yeah, we should use the, the latest information if we do humanitarian. And that's where I think uh, my colleagues at Data Friendly Space, they are they're trying to do secondhand data and trying to collect those and trying to put that together to see that we get the most updated information on the ground. Because I think for me, that's one of the things where AI and, and, and is the whole assessment, the whole thing. Right now, I'm sure Roberto has his own team that go out and does assessments all the time. I have my own team that does the same thing. We have hundreds of doing the same. And I'm a bit like, it must be, we, we should be able to do it smarter. We, we cannot be true that we all need to do our own assessments all the time and do the thing. And I think there I see artificial intelligence and the whole gathering of information can be stored in a few few areas uh, that, are, that are much more. And I think for me, I think there's a lot of very, very great potential around artificial intelligence. I also see some danger signs, especially as the Red Cross. I can say that we are slightly worried because we already have, issues around emblem protection and, and people misusing our emblem and, and we're getting critiqued from different sides. And I can see AI certainly not helping on that issue. It probably makes it even worse in terms of, of who can go out and say what the Red Cross have done and not done. So I think for me, that creates some some challenges and so on. But I think I think in, in general terms, it's very positive. And I think that's where Ukraine probably are a very, very special humanitarian context because it is a very digital country. It is unlike most of the other humanitarian situations. They are very, very digital. I was, I've always looked, uh, now Roberto talks a lot about multipurpose gas. I'm always been into, even though I know it's a bit lit, it's a bit area where you shouldn't be saying that in 2022 and 23, but I'm very much, I like the idea of cryptocurrencies. And I think the, I think if there was one country where we should be able to do crypto transfer instead of doing cash transfer, it should be Ukraine. Because I, I know before the 24th of February 22, 30% of Ukrainians actually owned a cryptocurrency account. That is amazing numbers. It's 10 times more than they do in Denmark, right? So, so I think they are very, very digital. And I think that provides some very, very positive uh, examples of uh, things we can do. I think there are some areas, of course, that has been a little bit where we've been trying to do things, but it's a little bit off limit in Ukraine. But I think there are, for instance, you could use a lot of our medical uh, supplies as we do in other countries, that you do drones and all these things, that's a bit not so good in Ukraine. <laughs> they have a lot of drones, but they do other things uh, than that. So so I think uh, there are so many potentials in Ukraine into a digital and, and, and artificial intelligence move. So I think if we want to do something strong on artificial intelligence or on digitalization or on other things in human turn setting, Ukraine is the place to do it. Because that the, the opportunities there are much, much bigger because you have a very, very digitalized country that understands the opportunities and possibilities. 
Roberto, we um we have a closing question that we like to ask mm -hmm. everybody. I thought we'd um let you ask the question to Jakob and answer it yourself. Okay. So before we close, we'd like to ask all our guests to, to think about futuristic AI application they love to see exist and to describe it for us. So, Jacob, what would you love to see? Well, I think uh, let me start by one that is that I really would love to see, but it's not very humanitarian. And that is, I would love to see AI be much better. Right now, we see very, very strong intelligence from the Ukrainian side when it comes to drones and missiles coming into the country so we can get to safety in place. But I would like that to be developed much more like an institutional in, international tool so you can actually, with all the intelligence, all the satellites and all the things, that you can actually get the data and make sure that you can find out where are all these bloody missiles and all these drones and where are they coming so in good time we can move. So we don't get surprised every time they come. I think for me that would be a fantastic tool will help our security setup in all countries we're working quite a lot uh, if, if that kind of tool were actually being developed. I know that's probably on the military development, so I will not uh, I will not say, but I think from, from a security point of view, that would be really, really relevant for us to have that much certain, much more certain. When can you continue to operate and when do you need to take shelter because the, the missiles are coming? I think for me, that will be a, a fantastic uh, to use artificial intelligence and and data to to collect that. I think, uh, so that's one part, but I think from a more humanitarian and, and development side, I think for me, the, the main thing I think is to increase the access to our to the people we want to help. And in that, I mean, how do we get artificial intelligence that actually helps us profile the one we want to help so we can help them in a much better way without compromising GDPR and all these kind of things. But actually, because right now what we're doing in the Ukrainian Red Cross are doing right now, they send out these assessment teams to the small villages that have been left alone and they go to house to house and find out we have 50 people there and they need this, people need this, these people need this, these people need this. Could we do something where this data collection is much more done in a much better way and much quicker way so we actually, the first time we go out, actually brings the right stuff and don't have to find out first what is happening. And I think, again, with Ukraine, you probably have the opportunity to develop that. There are some concerns about privacy and all the things on that, but that's uh, for me, that will be good to have these kind of uh, digital assessments already done without, you know, you don't have to call them on the phone or go there in person. I can answer as well, because, I mean, maybe I watch too many movies, futuristic movies, but... Uh, one thing is if you could combine uh, satellite imagery with AI for uh, the assessment of damaged housing and uh, AI, an application could tell you exactly the degree of the damage whether and the, the degree of investment that a particular house would need. That would be that would be amazing. We were discussing it here inside whether that could be a possibility combining both satellite imagery and and then artificial intelligence to tell us whether it and any given point, any any given area of Ukraine is how to address uh, housing reconstruction. Housing is a major issue now in Ukraine, so access to affordable housing is a major issue in Ukraine. That would be one. 
the other one, and this maybe just just to give an example, I mean, in, in Howard and probably Jack, uh, Jacob's uh, day is very similar to mine, and uh, we were we get messages, we get email, we get Teams, we get uh, WhatsApps, we get. Uh, we all have our internal ecosystems in our, I mean, digital systems in our organizations with different apps and, and we get information through that, things to sign online, offline. And this is something that we were thinking here. I mean, it's how to maximize the use of, uh, for instance, the Microsoft package. Uh, and I know that, uh, I mean, the, the co-pilot is, is not so easy to use. I mean, it's not so intuitive. But um, yeah, if you could have your own digital assistant to filter things for you, I mean, that, that can only be done with artificial intelligence at the moment. Uh, I mean, and very elaborate software as well, I'm not an expert, but uh, that would really facilitate our days. I mean, our day to day, because it's, uh, it's hard to keep up with the different platforms that uh, that we use for communication and uh, obviously then we miss important things but that is something that we were discussing is inside of the organization here in ukraine how we can optimize how we can make our time more effective how artificial intelligence can be can be used to to do that yes meetings that would be fantastic <laughs> but I, I'll just uh, just back to just quickly Roberto, on your first point because I actually think that's very interesting. And I think also one of the things that I think we are facing also, apart from not knowing what the damages are for the houses and all thing, I think one of the challenges also, of course, is that you have the cluster system in your entire world that set the standards for what you are supposed to do and everything. And I think if you combine your ideas, Roberto, with a standard setting from the cluster, it would also mean that we actually get more or less standard pricings and system which would make it much more easy also for the donors to come to us because I think right now the point is that they are looking at it and you can get free offers from five different organizations that goes in all directions in terms of cost and damage or repairs. So if you can get some kind of standard setting from the satellite images and then from the clusters about what you need to do, that will make it much, much easier and much more simplified for everyone, I think. And 3D, 3D printing of construction materials as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I... I, I if the the three things could be combined, uh, that uh, that would be amazing. <laughs> Thank you, both of you, for your ideas, and that's one of the reasons we do this podcast. Is it it helps to inspire, you know, AI developers and students to take an interest in humanitarian operations and think about ways of leveraging AI and technology, and that's how we advance the field. And you know, we've come a long way since Bosnia and the beginning of the internet and email. And, uh, you know, we're going to. And I think it's important to remember there are hundreds of IT companies in Ukraine, right? So I think it's really important if you want, if people want to engage in Ukraine, which I really hope they do, partner up with some of these amazing young Ukrainian companies. They're really strong as well. Yeah. I was going to ask you for a, a final takeaway for each of you, but Jakob, that sounds like your, um, your, <laughs> yeah. your, your call yes. to action. Yes, we need to engage the Ukrainian society. That's a bit my, so, yeah. Roberto, would you like to leave a final message? And thank you, both of you, for being on the podcast. And, you know, just thinking about the, the different ways I messaged you to get you on the show and coordinate. And I, I apologize, yet I'm so happy it worked out, all these digital pathways. So 
So thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation, Brent. And it's been, I mean, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, and Jacob. I would, I would just say to the students out there, I mean, that, uh, yeah, I think that every AI student out there has a dream of uh, creating potentially something that becomes a unicorn. But if you re really want to make a change, think about us, think about the people that we're trying to assist, think about these conflicts, think about how how difficult it is. There are a hundred active conflicts in the world at the moment. So if I could go back to my teens, I, I, would, uh, I would go into, and have the possibility of studying artificial intelligence, I would most definitely do. And the, this focus on humanitarian assistance and facilitating our work, it's going to be of massive, of incredible help in years to come. So I would just ask uh, all of those uh, incredibly smart students out there to think about apply AI to humanitarian aid. Thank you, both of you. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you and so informative and so important for the humanitarian and the tech communities. So this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.